Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we are continuing our musculoskeletal series and the first topic that we are going to discuss in this particular episode is the knee. The anatomy of the knee and the physical exam maneuvers which test the different ligaments and structures of the knee joint. However, before we move on to the physical exam maneuvers, let's first discuss the anatomy of the knee. The knee joint is created by two bones. This is the femur, or the thigh bone, and the tibia. The femur, at its distal part, has two prominences, which are called medial and lateral condyles. And then medial and lateral condyles are connected to the tibia with the cruciate ligaments. But before we talk about the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments, let's talk about the other more external structures, which are the collateral ligaments. The knee joint, each knee joint, has one lateral collateral ligament and one medial collateral ligament. As the name implies, lateral collateral ligament is located on the lateral side of the knee and it connects the lateral femoral condyle to the fibula. In contrast, the medial collateral ligament is located medially and it connects the medial femoral condyle to the tibia. At the same time, the knee joint contains the meniscus, the lateral and the medial menisci, which are located in between the femoral condyles and the tibial plateau. The role of the meniscus is to absorb all of the tension and compression that is exerted on the knee joint while we are doing the different physical exercises. For example, while we are jogging or jumping. So any physical exercise that exerts considerable amount of pressure on the knee can potentially damage the knee joint. But this damage is prevented by this pad-like structure called meniscus. And we have two menisci, right? Medial and the lateral. Okay, and now the two ligaments which I'd like to talk to you about are the cruciate ligaments. 
Cruciate ligaments are called cruciate ligaments because they create the cross-like structure when we look at them simultaneously. Uh, and we have anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments. It's very high yield for us to know what, can, what is connected by the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments. Now here's the thing. The first aid has a very useful mnemonic for this. The mnemonic sounds like this. LAMP. L-A-M-P. Let's break down this mnemonic. So first, what does the letter L stand for? Well, L stands for lateral femoral condyle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And A stands for anterior cruciate ligament. Now we can build up the sense from here. So lateral femoral condyle is connected to anterior tibia by anterior cruciate ligament. You can see that the letter A in the word limp denotes the anterior cruciate ligament and the anterior tibia. Now let's move on to the two last two letters of this word, M and P. The logic here is the same. M denotes the femoral condyle, but in this case, that's the medial femoral condyle. And the P denotes posterior cruciate ligament and posterior tibia. Now, let's build up the sense from this. Medial femoral condyle is connected to the posterior tibia by posterior cruciate ligament. It's very important to know the normal functions of the knee ligaments, and let's discuss these functions. Let's start from collateral ligaments again. <clears throat> the lateral collateral ligament prevents excessive abduction of the knee. Uh, sorry, not abduction, I'm sorry. It uh, prevents excess, excessive adduction of the knee. So, lateral collateral ligament prevents the inward bending of the leg. Now, medial collateral ligament prevents excessive abduction of the knee or outward bending of the leg. The cruciate ligaments control the anterior and posterior movements of the knee. Anterior cruciate ligament prevents excessive anterior sliding of the tibia relative to the femur. In other words, anterior cruciate ligament prevents excessive anterior knee dislocation. The posterior cruciate ligament, logically, prevents excessive posterior gliding of tibia relative to the femur. And we have several physical exam maneuvers which check the integrity of these different ligaments. So let's move on to these physical maneuvers and explain what the symptoms of the patient will be in case of damage to the different knee ligaments. The first test that we are going to discuss is the anterior drawer sign. 
And before we dive deep into the details of this test, let me give you one very helpful rule of thumb in order to remember which ligaments are tested by the drawer tests. Anterior drawer test checks for the integrity of the anterior cruciate ligament, while the posterior drawer sign checks for the integrity of the posterior cruciate ligament. Let's describe the anterior drawer sign. The patient bends the knee, so the patient first of all lies down on the exam table and bends the knee at 90 degrees angle. After this, we fixate the knee, sorry, we fixate the femur, and then we exert the anterior or pulling force on the tibia. And if the physical exam reveals excessive anterior gliding of the tibia relative to the femur, this signifies the anterior cruciate ligament injury. The idea here is that normally the ACL should prevent the excessive anterior gliding of the tibia relative to the femur. So if the tibia can glide anteriorly relative to the femur, it means that ACL is torn or at least damaged. There's another test which is an alternative for the anterior drawer sign. This test is called the Lackman test. The Lackman test also checks for the integrity of the anterior cruciate ligament. The only difference in terms of technique of the anterior drawer sign and the Lackman test is the degree of the knee flexion. As we already mentioned, the anterior drawer sign requires the patient's knee to be flexed at 90 degrees. In contrast, the Lackman test requires the patient's knee to be flexed at 30 degrees. And Lackman test is actually more sensitive uh, to identify the ACL injury. And again, we bend the patient's knee at 30 degrees angle, and then we fixate the femur with our hand, and with the other hand, we apply anterior or pulling force on the tibia. If the tibia slides anteriorly relative to the femur, then we can conclude that the patient has ACL injury. One trick behind the anterior and posterior drawer signs and the gliding of the femur and the tibia relative to each other is that sometimes the board questions play with the words. It might be the word game, so I'd like you to pay much attention to what glides relative to what. So here is what I mean right now. When the anterior cruciate ligament is damaged, we know that the tibia expresses excessive anterior gliding relative to the femur. In other words, tibia comes forward and the femur stays backwards, right, at, at the posterior position. But I can rephrase this and tell you that the patient exhibits excessive posterior sliding of the femur relative to the tibia. Again, I'm telling you that when I exert the pulling pressure on the patient's tibia, the femur stays backwards, 
while the tibia comes forward. And that still signifies the anterior cruciate ligament injury. So again, anterior cru cruciate ligament injury can be described as excessive anterior gliding of the tibia relative to the femur or excessive posterior gliding of the femur relative to the tibia. Let's move on to the posterior drawer sign. Now let me ask you a question. It's a very simple question, nothing complicated. Based on what we've said several minutes ago, could you please tell me which ligament will be tested by the posterior drawer sign? Absolutely. Posterior drawer sign tests the posterior cruciate ligament. And the technique here is the same as in the anterior drawer sign. We place the patient on the exam table. We instruct the patient to bend her or his knee at 90 degrees angle. And in this case, we apply the inward posterior or the pushing force to the tibia. So push the tibia inwards. And if the patient exhibits excessive posterior gliding of the tibia relative to the femur, that signifies the injury of the posterior cruciate ligament. The idea here is that posterior cruciate ligament normally prevents the excessive posterior gliding of the tibia relative to the femur. So if that gliding occurs, it means that posterior cruciate ligament cannot hold the tibia in its normal location when we apply the pushing force. But again, the board question may play with the words. So posterior cruciate ligament injury can be described as excessive posterior gliding of tibia relative to the femur or excessive anterior gliding of the femur relative to the tibia. Regardless of how we can say this, we imply that during this inward force that the examiner exerts on the patient's tibia, the tibia goes backwards and the femur comes a little bit forward. Okay, let's move on to another test which is called abnormal passive abduction. In this test, we fixate the femur and we try to abduct the patient's shin or the patient's tibia and fibula. To rephrase this, let me tell you something like this. So we again fixate the femur and then we try to pull the patient's shin outwards. This puts the, uh, puts the stress and tension on the medial collateral ligament. In a healthy patient with the intact medial collateral ligament, the space, the medial joint space, should not widen. In other words, the medial collateral ligament should be capable of holding the tibia and the medial femoral condyle together. However, let's imagine a situation where the patient has MCO injury. In case of MCO injury, when we apply the valgus stress or the valgus force, the space between the medial femoral condyle and the tibia will widen up. This is because the medial collateral ligament can no longer 
maintain the normal distance between these two bones. So again, the abnormal passive abduction is performed with the patient lying on the exam table. The knee should be extended or flexed at 30 degrees angle, and then we should apply the lateral or valgus force on the knee. And if that causes medial space widening, that signifies medial collateral ligament injury. Now that we have already discussed the abnormal passive abduction, it'll be very easy for us to talk about the abnormal passive adduction. In this case, again, we place the patient on the exam table. We either extend the patient's knee or flex it at 30 degrees angle, and then we apply the medial force or varus force. So we apply the force from the inner part of the knee. And that force is supposed to adduct the shin or pull the shin inwards. The very stress puts the tension on the lateral collateral ligament. Now, when the lateral collateral ligament is intact, it'll be able to maintain the normal distance between the lateral femoral condyle and the fibula. However, if the patient has tear or injury of the lateral collateral ligament, then when we apply the varus force, the lateral space will widen up excessively at the lateral joint line. And this will signify the lateral collateral ligament injury. Now we're talking about the collateral ligament injuries, and I'd like to mention one very high-yield condition that we will talk about later as well. However, it, it makes sense to talk about this condition here. This condition is called unhappy triad. Unhappy triad is caused when the patient experiences the excessive valgus force usually due to trauma. Let's say the patient is playing some kind of contact sport, for example, football. Uh, and then if the patient experiences the trauma from the lateral side of the knee, this will immediately put extra pressure and tension on the medial collateral ligament. And this will cause the tear of the medial collateral ligament. But we should explain why this condition is called the unhappy triad. Triad means that three structures are damaged. We already talked about the one, right? This is medial collateral ligament. Now, what are the other two? Well, first thing, the medial meniscus is physically connected to the medial collateral ligament. Therefore, whenever the medial collateral ligament is either damaged or torn, there is always the possibility of damaging the medial meniscus because that tension is spread from the medial collateral ligament to the medial meniscus. And in the patients with unhappy triad, medial meniscus is also torn. And the third structure which is damaged in the unhappy triad is the anterior cruciate ligament. 
because anterior cruciate ligament is connected to the medial meniscus as well. We have talked about the damage to the medial meniscus in case of the unhappy triad. However, let me tell you one very high yield thing. In contact sports, the most commonly injured meniscus is the lateral meniscus of the knee, not the medial meniscus. Okay? Um, yeah, and now that we are talking about the menisci, let's talk about the physical exam maneuvers which test the lateral and medial menisci. The first test is the McMurray test. Let's describe the uh, steps of how to perform the McMurray test. We place the patient on the exam table and then we uh, passively flex the patient's knee and then extend the knee. However, during extension, we first externally rotate the knee and then internally rotate the knee or vice versa. It doesn't have, uh, it doesn't matter. However, we should perform both external and internal rotation while we are extending the knee. Let's talk about the idea behind the McMurray test. When we extend the knee from the flexed position and when we externally rotate the foot and the shin, this puts the stress on the medial meniscus. Therefore, if the patient experiences either pain at the medial joint line or popping sensation or locking of the joint while undergoing the external rotation, this means that the patient has medial meniscal tear. On the other hand, internal rotation while extending the knee puts the stress on the lateral meniscus. Guys, I'd like to, I'd like to recommend you to imagine these movements and also to uh, either search the videos for McMurray test in the YouTube and you will understand how internal rotation of the foot and the tibia while extending the knee puts the stress on the lateral meniscus. Therefore, if the patient experiences either pain or popping sound or locking of the lateral joint line while extending and internally rotating the knee, this will signify the lateral meniscal tear. The mnemonic for McMurray test, according to the first date, is LINE. So let's talk about the first two letters, okay? L and I. L stands for lateral meniscal tear. I stands for internal rotation. Let's build up the sense from here. Internal rotation puts the stress on the lateral meniscus. Therefore, if the patient has positive symptoms on the internal rotation of the knee, that signifies the lateral meniscal tear. Let's move on to the last two letters of the word line. M stands for medial meniscal tear, while E stands for external rotation. And again, external rotation puts the stress on the medial meniscus. So if the patient has the positive signs on external rotation like pain or popping sound or locking of the joint, that signifies the medial 
meniscal tear. There's another test for meniscal injury, which is called Thessaly test. Thessaly test includes, involves the patient standing on one knee with another leg elevated and the knee that the, that the foot that the patient is standing on should be slightly flexed. What I mean here is that the knee should be flexed at approximately five degrees. And then the patient should rotate on this flexed knee. When the patient rotates medially, that stresses the medial meniscus. Therefore, if the patient experiences pain or popping sound on the medial rotation or internal rotation, that signifies medial meniscal tear. In contrast, during the Thessaly test, if the patient uh, experiences pain or popping on the external or lateral rotation, that stresses the lateral meniscus. Therefore, it signifies lateral meniscal injury. So this was the anatomy of the knee and the physical exam maneuvers to test the different ligaments of the knee joint. Again, before we move on to another topic, I'd like to recommend to you to watch the videos of these physical exam maneuvers on the YouTube because when you see those maneuvers then you will never forget it and you will also understand the mechanism of these maneuvers better. Right, let's move on to the ankle sprains. But before we talk about the ankle sprain itself, we'll talk about the bones which create the ankle and the whole foot and we'll also discuss the ligaments which surround the ankle joint. The ankle joint is created by the physical contact of three bones. This is tibia, fibula, and the talus. Talus is one of the tarsal bones. Well, talus, as we already mentioned, is the bone that has the direct contact with the tibia and the fibula. Immediately under the talus, we have the calcaneus, or commonly known as the heel bone. Immediately in front of the talus and calcaneus, we have five different bones, which are also considered the tarsal bones. On the medial side of the foot, we have navicular bone, which has the direct contact with the talus, and immediately anterior to the navicular bone, we have three cuneiform bones, medial, medial, and the lateral cuneiform bones. And laterally to the, um, to the navicular and the cuneiform bones, we have the cuboidal bone. So to summarize the tarsal bones, we have talus, calcaneus, navicular, cuneiform bones, and the cuboid bone. These bones create the tarsal group of bones. After the tarsal bones, we have the metatarsal bones. Just like we have metacarpal bones in the hand, we have metatarsal bones in the foot. And after the metatarsals, we have the phalanges. So proximal, middle, and the distal phalanges. We'll now concentrate on the tarsal bones and then and the ankle joint. There are five ligaments which hold together the lateral part of the ankle joint. And before we list these five ligaments, let me give you one very useful tip. 
please pay attention to the names of these ligaments because they tell us which two bones are connected to each other by each of these ligaments. The first ligament is calcaneofibular ligament. Again, the name is calcaneofibular ligament, meaning that this ligament connects the calcaneus and the fibula. Now, on the posterior side of the lateral ankle joint, we have two ligaments. The upper one is posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, and the lower one is posterior talofibular ligament. As the name implies, posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament connects the posterior tibia to the posterior fibula, while posterior talofibular ligament connects the posterior parts of the talus and the fibula. We have the similar ligaments on the anterior part of the lateral ankle joint. The upper ligament on the anterior part of the lateral ankle joint is the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, and the lower ligament on that location is the anterior talofibular ligament. And these are those two ligaments which are most commonly injured during the ankle sprain. Before we talk about the types of the ankle sprain and the ligament injured in each of these types, let's define the ankle sprain. First, ankle sprain is not the same thing as ankle fracture. Fracture means disruption of the bone integrity, right? So the fracture of the bone. However, when we say ankle sprain, we mean that one of these ankle joint ligaments are either damaged or torn. So sprain is the disease of the ligaments, while fracture is disruption of the bone integrity. We have two types of ankle sprains, the high ankle sprain and the low ankle sprain. The high and low ankle sprains are classified according to which ligament is injured. As you can understand, high ankle sprain will have the higher ligament injured, while low ankle sprain will have the lower ligament injured. Let me tell you what I mean. We already mentioned that the anterior part of the lateral, knee, uh, lateral um, ankle joint sorry, contains two ligaments. Superiorly, we have anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, and inferiorly, we have anterior talofibular ligament. In the high ankle sprain, the ligament that's damaged or torn is the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, the ligament that's located upper, in, in the upper position. And in the low ankle sprain, the ligament that is damaged is the anterior talofibular ligament, the ligament that's located inferiorly. The most common type of ankle sprain is the low ankle sprain, and therefore the most commonly injured ligament in the ankle sprain is the anterior talofibular ligament. The useful mnemonic to remember which ligament is injured in the ankle sprain most commonly is always tears first. So the first letters of these three words coincide with the letters of the anterior talofibular ligament. So A for anterior, 
T for tallow and F for fibular. Always, so anterior tallow fibular ligament always tears first. And the most common mechanism of the ankle sprain is overinversion, also known as supination of the foot. This usually happens due to accidental trauma. Let's say the patient is running and then suddenly she or he twists her or his ankle. And this can cause the ankle sprain because the overinversion or supination of the foot exerts the stress and mechanical tension on the lateral ankle joint ligaments, especially the anterior talofibular ligament. Okay. Now that we are done with the ankle sprains, let's move on to the signs of lumbosacral radiculopathy. First of all, let's define the term radiculopathy. Radiculopathy means spinal nerve root compression, or simply spinal nerve compression. And the most common reason for radiculopathy is the herniation of the intervertebral disc. Let's remember that the intervertebral discs are located between each vertebrae, all the way starting from the cervical vertebrae all the way to the lumbar vertebrae. And then intervertebral discs have the outer thick ring, which is called annulus fibrosus, and the inner gelatinous material, which is called nucleus pulposus. And one side note here, so one question, and I'll be very happy if you have an answer in this. Zoosemilers, could you please remind me the remnant of what embryologic structure is the nucleus pulposus of the intervertebral discs? That's amazing. The nucleus pulposus is the remnant of the notochord. And when we say that the patient has intervertebral disc herniation, we mean that the nucleus pulposus is herniated across the annulus fibrosus, and the nucleus pulposus compresses the spinal nerve at the, at the place where it exits the vertebral canal through the intervertebral foramen. What I'm trying to say here is that intervertebral disc herniation occurs posterolaterally. Let's explain this anatomical concept here. It's very high to remember that the vertebral column has the anterior longitudinal ligament, longitudinal, sorry, ligament, which prevents the intervertebral discs from herniating anteriorly. Similarly, the vertebral column has the posterior longitudinal ligament, which prevents the intervertebral disc herniation in the posterior midline. The part of the vertebral bodies of the vertebral canal that are not covered by these longitudinal ligaments are the posterolateral parts. And since the vertebral column and the intervertebral discs are not supported by the longitudinal ligaments in the posterolateral position, this is the most common location of the intervertebral disc herniation. 
Okay, now we are talking about the lumbosacral radiculopathy and it's worth mentioning that spinal nerve root compression most commonly occurs at the lumbar area or at the lower back. This is why we are talking about lumbosacral radiculopathy, meaning that either lumbar or sacral or mixed nerves are compressed in this condition. However, please keep in mind that intervertebral disc herniation and the radiculopathy can occur at any level of the vertebral column. For example, in the cervical vertebral column, right? And another important thing about the lumbosacral radiculopathy is that the spinal nerve that is compressed is the traversing nerve or the nerve that exits below the level of the herniated disc. Before we go any further, let's take a step back and talk about how the spinal nerves exit through the intervertebral foramina. All the spinal nerves starting from C1 all the way through the C7 exit above their corresponding vertebra. Let me give you an example. The C2 spinal nerve exits above the C2 vertebra, or in other words, it exits from the C1, C2 intervertebral foramen. The same is true for C7 spinal nerve, which um, exits above the C7 vertebra or from the C6, C7 intervertebral foramen. We know that we have eight cervical spinal nerves, right? So the last cervical spinal nerve is the C8, not C7. And the C8 spinal nerve exits between the C7 and T1 vertebrae. Therefore, starting from the T1 spinal nerve, all the other nerves down below exit below their corresponding vertebra. Let me give you an example for this as well. Let's say, let's say the L5 spinal nerve. Could you please tell me where, from where the L5 spinal nerve comes out? That's totally correct. L5 spinal nerve root exits below the L5 vertebra, or in other words, it exits from the L5 S1 intervertebral foramen. Now we talked about this organization to distinguish between the exiting root and the traversing root. Exiting spinal nerve root is the root that exits that specific intervertebral foramen. For, for example, for the L5 S1 intervertebral foramen, the exiting root is the L5 spinal nerve root. The traversing root is the spinal nerve root that exits one level below the intervertebral, specific intervertebral foramen. For the L5 S1 intervertebral foramen, the traversing root will be S1 spinal nerve root, which actually exits between the sorry, which exits from the S1, S2 intervertebral foramen. And you will understand the clinical significance 
of this organization in a second. As we already mentioned, the lumbosacral radiculopathy usually occurs at the low level of the back. So it happens at the levels of L4, L5, and S1 uh, vertebrae. The first lumbar spinal nerve that can be compressed by herniated intervertebral disc is the L4. Now, uh, L4 spinal nerve is compressed when we have the L3, L4 intervertebral disc herniation. That is herniation of the disc, which is between L3 and L4 vertebrae. <clears throat> Um, and L4 spinal nerve contributes significant amount of fibers to the femoral nerve. From our previous episode, could you please remind me which spinal nerves create the femoral nerve? It's L2. Okay, what next? L3, that's right, and L4. But most of the fibers in the femoral nerve are from the L4 spinal nerve. Therefore, whenever we have L4 radiculopathy, this will affect the normal functions of the femoral nerve. Let me remind you that the femoral nerve innervates anterior thigh compartment, especially the quadriceps femoris muscle, right? And quadriceps femoris muscle is responsible for knee extension and the patellar reflex as well. Therefore, the patient with L4 radiculopathy will have weakened knee extension and she or he will have decreased patellar reflex. Additionally, there is a specific dermatome which will be affected in the L4 radiculopathy. I'd like to tell you that the L4 dermatome, or the skin area innervated by the L4 spinal nerve fibers, spreads from the lateral thigh, traverses the medial knee, and ends at the medial foot. So it innervates the skin on the big toe. And therefore, this dermatome will experience the symptoms in the patient with L4 radiculopathy. The patient may have pain spreading down this dermatome or paresthesias. Let's move on to the next radiculopathy, which is L5 radiculopathy or L5 spinal nerve compression. Let me ask you a question. Could you please tell me which intervertebral disc herniation causes the L5 radiculopathy? That's amazing. It's L4, L5 intervertebral disc herniation. Because, uh, so that intervertebral foramen, the L4, L5 intervertebral foramen, contains the L4 spinal nerve. So that's the exiting route for L4, L5 intervertebral foramen, but the traversing route will be L5. This is why L5 is the spinal nerve that's compressed in L4, L5 intervertebral disc herniation. The L5 uh, spinal nerve contributes considerable amount of fibers to the fibular 
or peroneal nerve. Peroneal nerve, let me remind you that it, 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 it contains the fibers from L4 all the way through S3 spinal nerves. And since the patient, so since the L5 spinal nerve contributes many fibers to the fibular nerve, the patient with L5 radiculopathy will have the deficits of the fibular nerve. Let me ask you a question. Zoosomaliers, could you please remind me the normal function of the deep fibular nerve? Absolutely. Deep fibular nerve innervates the anterior anterior leg compartment muscles and therefore is responsible for dorsiflexion of the foot and the finger extension. Foot dorsiflexion and finger extension will be weakened in the patient with L5 radiculopathy. Additionally, the foot dorsiflexion is necessary for the patient to walk on the heels. So if the patient has L5 radiculopathy, he or she won't be able to walk on his or her heels. And one thing, I think I said that the fibular nerve contains fibers from L4 to S3 spinal nerve. That's incorrect. I'm so sorry. Fibular nerve contains fibers from L4 to S2 spinal nerve. Okay? And the last radiculopathy that we're going to discuss here is the S1 radiculopathy or compression of the S1 spinal nerve root. Could you please tell me the intervertebral disc at which level should be herniated to cause the S1 radiculopathy? A little louder please. Absolutely. It's L5-S1 intervertebral disc herniation that creates S1 radiculopathy. Now, S1 spinal nerve root contributes many fibers to the tibial nerve. Tibial nerve certainly contains fibers from L4 all the way through S3 spinal nerves. And tibial nerve is responsible for foot plantar flexion and the flexion of the, uh, yeah, basically uh, foot, right? Plantar flexion of the foot. Therefore, if the patient has S1 radiculopathy, he or she won't be able to plantar flex the feet or foot, depending on whether it's unilateral or bilateral. At the same time, Plantar flexion is the normal reflex response to the Achilles reflex. When we uh, strike the hammer on the Achilles tendon, the foot should plantar flex reflexively. And that reflex, the Achilles reflex, will be weakened in the patient with S1 radiculopathy. Achilles reflex is normally mediated by S1, S2 nerve roots. And the dermatome that will be affected in the S1 radiculopathy is the skin over the posterior thigh 
posterior um, shin, I mean posterior leg, and the sole of the foot. Because this is the area of the skin that's innervated by the tibial nerve. The dermatome that'll be affected in the L5 radiculopathy, which I forgot to tell you beforehand, is the area of the skin over the lateral thigh and leg. So L5 dermatome spreads from the lateral thigh all the way to the lateral leg and the lateral fingers of the uh, lateral toes. Um, so this includes index finger, middle finger, ring finger, and the pinky uh, finger of the foot. Right, so now we have talked about the three most common radiculopathies, and the most common radiculopathy out of these three is the S1 radiculopathy, which is also known as sciatica, or sciatic nerve compression. Now that we have discussed the lumbosacral radiculopathies, now we'll talk about the neurovascular pairing. In other words, we will discuss which nerve and artery travel together in the different anatomical locations. The board questions might actually ask which artery may be damaged with the damage of a specific nerve. So since these nerves and arteries travel together, we need to know which, are, which of them are paired together so that we can answer such questions. In the lateral thorax, we have the long thoracic nerve. Could you please remind me from our one of our previous episodes which muscle is innervated by the long thoracic nerve? I really, really hope that you are saying that it's serratus anterior muscle. And serratus anterior muscle is normally supposed to keep the scapula close to the ribcage. So if the patient has long thoracic nerve injury, then she or he might develop the winged scapula, where scapula on the affected side is protruded excessively on the posterior side. The long thoracic nerve is accompanied by the lateral thoracic artery. So long thoracic nerve and the lateral thoracic artery travel together. So if one of them is damaged, then there is a high chance that the other structure will also be damaged. Let's move on to the surgical neck of the humerus. Let's remind ourselves that the surgical neck of the humerus is located between the epiphyses and diaphysis of the humerus. This is in contrast to the anatomical neck of the humerus, which is between the uh, epiphyseal cartilage or the articular cartilage and the epiphyses itself. Well, the surgical neck of the humerus has the axillary nerve surrounding it from the posterior side. And the artery which travels together with the axillary nerve is the posterior circumflex humeral artery. Therefore, axillary nerve damage may be accompanied by damage to the posterior circumflex humeral artery. The midshaft humerus contains the radial nerve in the radial groove. And we have already mentioned this in one of the previous episodes of the musculoskeletal system. However, what we have not mentioned up until this moment is that 
radial nerve in the radial groove is accompanied by the deep brachial artery. So radial nerve injury can be accompanied by damage to the deep brachial artery. Please pay attention to the fact that radial nerve is followed by the deep brachial artery. Not the brachial artery, but the deep brachial artery. Now, let's talk about the uh, cubital fossa or the distal humerus. We discussed this anatomical region when we talked about the supracondylar fractures. And we also mentioned that in supracondylar fractures, the most commonly injured nerve is the median nerve. Median nerve in the cubital fossa is accompanied by the brachial artery. Therefore, median nerve damage can be accompanied by the brachial artery damage as well. Popliteal fossa, which is the fossa immediately behind the knee, contains tibial nerve and it also contains the popliteal artery. And finally, let's talk about the region posterior to the medial malleolus. This region is called the tarsal tunnel. Tarsal tunnel contains the tibial nerve, just like the popliteal fossa. And tibial nerve, while when exiting the tarsal tunnel, goes into the sole of the foot. The artery that accompanies the tibial nerve in the tarsal tunnel is the posterior tibial artery. Therefore, damage to the medial malleolus or medial ankle fracture can damage not only the uh, tibial nerve but also the posterior tibial artery. Okay, we have now done the neurovascular pairing and the last topic for our today's episode will be motor neuron action potential and the muscle contraction. Before we talk about how the action potential spreads from the neuron to the muscle, we need to talk about several terms and we need to explain these terms so that we are feeling comfortable afterwards in our discussion. First of all, when we say muscle fiber, we mean the individual muscle cell. In other words, muscle fiber and the muscle cell are one and the same thing. Just like any cell, the muscle cell also contains the plasma membrane surrounding the whole cell. And the plasma membrane of the muscle fiber is sometimes referred to as the sarcoplasmic membrane. The sarcoplasm is the cytoplasm of the muscle cell. It's very important to know that each muscle cell, also known as muscle fiber, <clears throat> excuse me, contains one motor end plate. Motor end plate is a special uh, depressed, like slightly indented part of the sarcoplasmic membrane, which contains the acetylcholine receptors, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And we'll talk about the significance of these receptors in a very short time. But before that, let's discuss the content of each muscle cell. So muscle cell contains several myofibrils. Each myofibril is a long structure which is composed 
of the horizontal stacks of the sarcomeres. Now, sarcomere is the actual unit of the muscle. Let's talk about the sarcomere and its different uh, components because we'll need to know the sarcomeric structure to realize what will change to the sarcomeric size during the muscle contraction. Okay, so uh, sarcomere spreads from one Z-line to another Z-line. Z-line is a very dense structure which contains the proteins that hold the sarcomeric proteins together. So, for example, Z-line contains the titan, which is the largest protein in the human body, and it also contains the other proteins responsible for holding the actin and mycin in their normal positions. Around each Z-line, we have the I-band. I-band on the electron microscopy looks light, so it looks whitish. And the reason for this is that I-band contains actin. Before we go any further, let's mention the fact that muscle cell contains actin and myosin, and the interaction between actin and myosin creates muscle contraction. The actin is the protein with small molecular weight, so it's smaller than the myosin protein, and therefore, on the electron microscopy, the part of the sarcomere that contains only actin looks white because it's not dense in the molecular mass and it's not dense in electrons. Um, and then, so after the I-band, we have the A-band. A-band contains the peripheral parts and the H-band in the center. Now let's talk about the difference between this peripheral part of the A-band and the H-band. In the peripheral parts of the A-band, we have the overlap of myosin and actin. In the H-band, which is in exactly in the middle of the A-band, we only have the myosin. So there's no overlap of actin and myosin, there's just myosin uh, filaments. And then in the center of the H-band, we have the M-line. M-line consists of uh, the anchoring proteins similar to the proteins of the Z-line. So to summarize, sarcomeres, uh, sarcomere spreads from one Z-line to another Z-line. After the Z-line, on both sides, we have one half of the I-band. The I-band contains only the actin filaments. It actually, like in reality, it also contains the other proteins as well, which arise from the Z-line, but they're not as high yield as the actin and myosin. After the I-bands, we have the A-band. On both peripheral sides, the A-band contains the actin and myosin overlap, while in the center of the A-band, we have the H-band. H-band contains 
only the myosin filaments. And then in the center of the H-band, we have the M-line, which consists of the anchoring proteins similar to the proteins of the Z-lines. Now that we have talked about the structure of the muscle fiber, myofibrils, and the sarcomeres, we can start talking about the action potential and the route of action potential transmission from the axon to the muscle fiber. Again, as we already mentioned, each muscle cell or muscle fiber is innervated by one axon, which creates the neuromuscular junction with the motor end plate. When the action potential spreads, spreads all the way down to the axon, depolarization of the axonal membrane opens up the voltage-gated calcium channels on the presynaptic terminal of the axon. So these calcium channels cause the calcium influx inside the cytoplasm of the axon, and then calcium causes release of acetylcholine from the presynaptic terminal to the motor end plate. The calcium channels that we talked about now are also known as PQ-type calcium channels. And if the patient produces antibodies against these PQ-type presynaptic calcium channels, then the patient develops the syndrome called Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, which is commonly seen in patients with small cell lung cancer. So that was just the side note of what is high yield in this uh, anatomy. Okay, once the acetylcholine is released in the neuromuscular junction, it binds to the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, which are located on the motor end plate. The nicotinic uh, acetylcholine receptors are actually uh, the ion channels, and they mediate influx and efflux of sodium and potassium. So each channel causes influx of sodium from the neuromuscular junction into the muscle cell, and the same channel causes potassium efflux from the muscle cell to the neuromuscular junction. We know that both sodium and potassium are cations, right? So if, if uh, sodium comes into this muscle cell, but potassium is leaving the muscle cell, then the question is, how is the muscle cell depolarized? So cations come in, but cations are also leaving at the same time. The idea here is that the driving force for sodium is much higher than the driving force for potassium. The concentration difference between extracellular and intracellular sodium is much higher than the concentration difference of the extracellular and intracellular potassium. This is why much more sodium comes in the muscle cell than the potassium leaving the cell. So the net effect of opening up the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors is the depolarization of the muscle cell. Again, let me, let me give you one very high yield side note. When the patient 
produces antibodies against these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on the muscle, they develop the syndrome called myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis is commonly seen as the paraneoplastic syndrome of thymoma or thymic hyperplasia. Okay, now the acetylcholine has attached to the acetylcholine receptors, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on the muscle, motor end plate, and the depolarization of the muscle cell has already started. Now, this depolarization spreads across the whole sarcoplasmic membrane or the plasma membrane of the muscle cell. And it also goes deep down the muscle cell by the plasma membrane extensions called the T-tubules. T-tubules are indentations of the plasma membrane of the muscle cell which go deep down the core of the muscle cell. The T-tubules are called so because T stands for transverse, so it kind of traverses the uh, muscle cell, right? And very importantly, the T-tubule is surrounded by sarcoplasmic reticulum. Sarcoplasmic reticulum is actually the smooth endoplasmic reticulum of the muscle cell, and the sarcoplasmic reticulum is the primary store for calcium. Let me tell you another important difference between two tubules and the sarcoplasmic reticulum in the skeletal muscle and in the cardiac muscle. We know that both skeletal and cardiac muscle are striated types of muscle because they contain very specific order of the actin and myosin. And this order is called the sarcomere, right? And, and uh, the striated muscle is called striated because on the electron mi uh, microscopy, we have those alternating black and light regions corresponding to the A-bands and the I-bands. And they look like striae or stripes. Okay, in skeletal muscle, each T-tubule is surrounded by two sarcoplasmic reticulum on both sides. And this structure of one T-tubule in the center and two sarcoplasmic reticulums in the periphery are called the triad. In the cardiac muscle, one T-tubule only has one sarcoplasmic reticulum connected to it. And since there are only two structures together in the cardiac muscle, we call this unity a dyad because it only contains two structures, one T-tubule and one sarcoplasmic reticulum. T-tubule in its plasma membrane contains the voltage-sensitive dihydropyridine receptor. And this dihydropyridine receptor is mechanically and physically connected to ryanidine receptor, which is present on the sarcoplasmic reticulum. What I'm trying to say here is that T-tubule and the sarcoplasmic reticulum are physically connected to each other through the dihydropyridine receptor on the T-tubule 
and the ryanodine receptor on the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And the depolarization of the T tubule opens up the dihydropyridine receptor. Well, since dihydropyridine receptor is physically connected to the ryanodine receptor, conformational change in the dihydropyridine receptor induces the same conformational changes in the ryanodine receptor. So if dihydropyridine receptor opens up, then the ryanodine receptor also opens up. Let me give you one question. We actually said the answer to this question several minutes ago, probably. Could you please remind me what is stored in high amounts in the sarcoplasmic reticulum? Absolutely. It's calcium. And when the ryanodine receptors open up on the sarcoplasmic reticulum, ryanodine receptors cause the calcium efflux from the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the cytoplasm of the muscle cell. And once we have enough concentration of calcium in the cytoplasm of the muscle cell, then we start the muscle contraction. Before we move on to the interaction of actin and myosin during muscle contraction, I'd like to give you another high-yield side note here. Ryanodine receptor is implicated in the pathogenesis of the malignant hyperthermia. Malignant hyperthermia is excessive muscle contraction and excessive heat production from muscle contraction in response to halothane group inhaled anesthetics or succinylcholine. The idea here is that patients with who develop malignant hyperthermia have autosomal dominant mutation in the ryanodine receptor 1 gene. So those ryanodine receptors in these patients are overactive and they can open even on a very small stimulus. This is why they have extra calcium efflux from the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the cytoplasm of the muscle cell and then excessive calcium in the cytoplasm of the muscle cell causes excessive muscle contraction. Excessive muscle contraction, in turn, induces excessive heat production. Okay, let's get back to the normal uh, muscle contraction and the interaction of actin and myosin. But again, I'm so sorry, I forgot to tell you another important point. We have a drug that blocks ryanodine receptor. I know that we haven't talked about this drug yet, but I would be really, really happy if you knew the drug. Do you know which drug can block the ryanodine receptor? Unbelievably cool. It's dantrolene. Dantrolene is the muscle relaxant, which is the antidote for malignant hyperthermia and also for the uh, neuroleptic uh, malignant syndrome. Okay, now we can certainly go to the actin and myosin interaction. The first... Myosin, as the unit, is the globular protein. It's called, uh, so, sorry, not the myosin, actin. So actin itself is a globular protein, and it's called G-actin, globular actin. Then those actin balls stack upon each other to create actin filaments, or F-actin. It's called filamentous actin. On top of actin, we have another 
longitudinal protein called tropomyosin. Tropomyosin has a very specific function. On the actin proteins, we have the myosin binding sites, the sites where myosin head binds to the actin and stimulates muscle contraction. The tropomyosin in relaxed muscle covers the myosin binding sites on the globular actin. Therefore, when the muscle is relaxed, the myosin head cannot bind to actin and the muscle contraction cannot occur. On top of the tropomyosin, there is another protein, which is actually a trimer, so it contains three separate proteins, and that protein is called troponin. I hope you have heard about troponin measurement in case of suspected acute coronary syndrome. And this is troponin that we measure. So since troponin is the part of striated muscle, uh, acute coronary syndrome like myocardial infarction can release the troponin in the blood. So if troponin is released in the blood, that signifies necrosis of the myocardial cells. And this is how we know that the patient has uh, myocardial infarction. Okay, that was another side note, but let's get back to the normal function of troponin. Calcium, which is in the cytoplasm of the muscle cell, binds to troponin C, a specific subunit of troponin. And it's called troponin C because it binds to calcium, so C for calcium. Once the calcium binds to troponin C, this will induce the configurational change in the tropomyosin. What I'm trying to say here is that tropomyosin will expose the myosin binding sites on the actin. And this is when the myosin head will bind to the myosin binding site on the actin. This process of actin and myosin binding is called the cross-bridge position. When the myosin head is bound to the actin, myosin is attached to ADP and inorganic phosphate. After cross-bridge is established, the inorganic phosphate is removed from the myosin head, and removal of the inorganic phosphate from the myosin head is what stimulates muscle contraction, also known as the power stroke. Power stroke is when the myosin head pulls on the actin filament. And in this way, the myosin head shortens the muscle. It's very high yield for the step one to know what parts of the sarcomere will shorten and which parts will stay the same length during the power stroke. Let's talk about this. Well, muscle contraction is caused by muscle shortening. In order for the muscle cell to shorten, myofibrils should shorten. And in order for the myofibrils to shorten, each sarcomere should shorten as well. Which means that the distance from Z to Z line will become smaller. And uh, so along the whole, throughout the whole contraction process, the area of actin and myosin overlap will increase. And this will decrease the size of the I-bands. As we already mentioned, 
I-bands contain all the actin. They don't contain the myosin. However, since the actin is pulled on by the myosin during the power stroke phase of the contraction, this will shorten the I-bands. The A-band will stay the same length. A-band contains the myosin fibers and at the level of the maximal sarcomeric contraction, the sarcomere length will actually equal to the length of the A-band. In other words, a band, uh, sorry, a sarcomere cannot get smaller than the A-band. And another band which will disappear uh, or at least shorten during the muscle contraction is the H-band. Could you please remind me what the H-band is? Absolutely. H-band is the central band in the sarcomere which contains only the myosin fibers. But again, we mentioned that the actin and myosin overlap during muscle contraction will increase. Therefore, the area of the sarcomere where we only have the myosin fibers will disappear. So the H-band will disappear. To summarize the size changes in the sarcomere, we can say that the sarcomeric length will shorten, so Z to Z distance will shorten, I-bands will shorten, H-band will disappear, but the A-band will stay the same length. Okay, now once the power stroke has been performed by the myosin head, ADP is released from the myosin head. Once the ADP is released, then the ATP binds to the myosin head, and binding of ATP to the myosin head releases the myosin head from the myosin binding site of the actin. So this position is called detached position. After the myosin head is detached from the actin, calcium also gets detached from the troponin C. So this will reverse all of these conformational changes. So once the calcium is off the troponin C, the tropomyosin will again cover the myosin binding site on the actin. After this, the myosin head will cleave the ATP into ADP and inorganic phosphate. And the cleavage of ATP into ADP and inorganic phosphate creates energy. It releases energy and a release of this energy makes the myosin head to uh, just get back to its cocked position. Cocked position is when the myosin head stands vertically and is ready to bind to actin. So if calcium is still available in the muscle cell cytoplasm after the myosin head assumes the cocked posture, then the contraction will continue. Finally, once the contraction is done, the calcium, which is still in the cytoplasm of the muscle cell, will be retransported back to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. However, here's the thing. As we mentioned previously, calcium 
goes from the sarcoplasmic reticulum into the cytoplasm of the muscle cell by the ryanodine receptors. But that's not the receptor which gets the calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Ryanodine receptor is the passive, is the example of the passive uh, transport. So um, what I mean is here that calcium goes from high concentration in the sarcoplasmic reticulum to the low concentration in the cytoplasm. But once the contraction has ended, cytoplasm contains higher amount of calcium than the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So in that case, we need the active transporter. We need the ATPase, and this ATPase is the CERCA, S-E-R-C-A, which stands for Sarcoendoplasmic Reticulum Calcium ATPase. So this was the whole process of action potential transmission from the neuron to the muscle and muscle contraction as well. We have come to an end of our today's episode and let's summarize everything that we have discussed today. In this episode, we talked about the anatomy of the knee, we discussed the important ligaments of the knee, and we also talked about the different physical exam maneuvers that can test for the injury of the different knee ligaments. Then we moved on to the ankle sprain. First, we discussed the anatomy of the ankle joint, tarsal bones, metatarsal bones, and the phalanges, and then we talked about the high and low ankle sprain. After this, we continued our episode with the lumbosacral radiculopathy. We talked about L4, L5, and S1 radiculopathies and their clinical signs and symptoms. After this, we talked about the neurovascular pairing, the nerves and arteries which travel together and which are often damaged together. And finally, we wrapped up our episode by talking about the action potential transmission from the neuron to the muscle and by describing the muscle contraction in detail. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attentions, Ears, and see you on the next episode.